Good evening. My name is Walter Armbrust. I'm a fellow of Middle East Center, and I'm going to be chairing tonight's seminar. The speaker this evening is Neil Ketchley. He's an associate professor of politics in the Department of Politics and International Relations, the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies, and he's a fellow of St. Anthony's College and the Middle East Center as well. He's a political scientist of the Arabic-speaking Middle East and North Africa, working at the intersections of political sociology and comparative politics. His book, Egypt in a Time of Revolution, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017, won the Charles Tilley Distinguished Contribution to Scholarship Award. His current research interests include episodes of mass protests in the Middle East and North Africa, the rise of political Islam in interwar Egypt, and the changing profiles of regional political elites. Neil's book was about a revolution that occurred a little over a decade ago. In today's lecture, he's going to apply some of the methods he used in analyzing contemporary politics to historical events, namely revolutions from above, specifically the 1952 free officer uprising, which as most of you probably know, some describe as a revolution and others as a coup. And of course, uh, if it was the latter, then it was certainly remembered as a popular coup, hence the blurring of the distinction between coup and revolution, or the exercise of a hegemonic viewpoint, depending on the degree to which you see the free officers seizing of power as a litmus test of politics and historical sensibilities. You've seen the abstract of the talk, so I won't go through it in detail. Suffice to say that the free officers revolt or coup or revolution, whichever term you use, is conventionally understood as a watershed moment. In other words, an event that gets inscribed in memory in before and after terms. But Neil's paper instead conjures with both change and continuity in assessing this important event. The title of his lecture is The Fate of Colonial Elites in Post-Colonial Regimes, Evidence from the 1952 Egyptian Revolution. For those of you who may not have attended these online events before, if you have questions, use the Q&A button in Zoom to ask your questions. If you want to remain anonymous, say so in the questions you ask. Otherwise, I will read out your name if I ask a question. And so with no further ado, I will turn things over to Neil Ketchley. Take it away, Neil. Great. Thanks very much, Walter. And thanks to everyone who's tuned in. I just looked in the participant list and I can see lots of, lots of friends and students. So it's really lovely that you're here. Thank you. So without repeating what Walter said too much, this is part of an ongoing project. My co-author, Gilad Wenick, is a PhD student at UCLA, who's also here, and I think might field some of the more difficult questions during the Q&A. It's actually part of a broader project that's still kind of unfolding, if you will, where we look at the kind of causes and the consequences of 1952, where we use the case both because we're secretly, we're substantively interested in, in what happens in Egypt, but we also think it's a case that can speak to kind of broader questions and debates that are kind of found in, in political science, political sociology, as it applies to the MENA region and uh, beyond. As I say, it's, it's a work in progress. It's very much a moving target. So any questions and comments, whether over the chat or by email, uh, much appreciated. So this kind of tranche of the project that we're really interested in is trying to think through how 52, and then more broadly, if we can generalize to a broader universe of cases, transforms state and political elites. And here we think that 52 is, is like a really nice example because it captures some of the, what we think are the kind of competing logics and tensions around what happens when groups of uh, often junior officers capture the state as occurred, not just obviously in Egypt, but obviously in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria and beyond, 
and where they then find themselves having to run a state for the first time. Uh, and in this, what we're really interested in is trying to think about who of, of those people who have come before, who are kind of manning the state bureaucracy, who obviously in the Egyptian context, we might, I think, somewhat clumsily and potentially problematically frame as a kind of colonial era elite. Certainly, as we're going to talk about, we definitely have so-called IN, the, the notable class who obviously have an Ottoman legacy, but who are kind of uh, maintained and insulated and, and, and continue under European British colonial rule, and who are manning many kind of key parts of the state on the eve of the 52 revolution, stroke coup. What happens to them? How many of them survive? Are they all completely purged? Or do some of them manage to cling on for one reason or another? And we think here that, that there are kind of potentially competing logics that are, I think, nicely summarized. Here, for example, this is a quote from Habib Naguib, speaking on the 24th of July, so the day after the free officers seize power, where he says, you know, we have declared from the beginning that the goal of our movement is to reform and cleanse the army and the institutions of the state. And indeed, we often find this when we think about comparable cases. Naguib says this on several different occasions. Uh, Governor Abdel Nasser also, you know, refers to cleansing or purging. He uses the Muslim here to cleanse or to purge. And there's obviously kind of like very clear incentives to do this. They, th these three officers are confronted by threats, potentially counter-revolutionary threats. There may be counter-coups uh, that may be in the offering. And so they, they have genuine, you know, there are genuine threats within, this, within these different bodies that they might want to target and purge. So there are questions of survival. There's obviously rhetorical incentives to be able to talk about purging and cleansing as a means of having a clear demarcation from what comes before to what they're going to do. Obviously, they need to be able to justify that. At the same time, we also think that there is a second tension running uh, underpinning this, which is when groups like the free officers find themselves in charge of a state apparatus, they are constrained in many ways, both by uh, the need to just keep the show on the road. They need to be able to keep basic state functions running, but also because they have quite transformative programs that they want to implement. And as we're going to talk about, you know, that the kinds of expertise that are required to be able to implement those programs can't necessarily come from the coup plotters themselves. It has to come from somewhere else. And again, this is captured by, uh, this is a quote from, from Nagib. I actually forget the context in which he, he says this, but he, he the, the quote says, you know that we need expertise in a number of different fields from engineering and medicine and economics and so on. That is why I want each of you to write down 10 names and then submit them to me within a week at most because we are in dire need of technical, capable, patriotic men. It's very gendered language. And we think that this, that we're going to use this, this kind of tension, this puzzle to try to, to try to illuminate why it is that when the free officers take over, um, there might be forms of turnover, but there also might be forms of continuity and survival of the kind of pre-revolutionary, potentially even colonial era elite. So let's get into it. So um, as is kind of obligatory, if you, if you come from kind of like a poli-sci uh, kind of background, you've obviously got to be able to root this into a broader set or universe of cases. It seems to me that, that there are important scope conditions for our argument. One of the things that really characterize this moment, again, speaking to broader developments, both in Egypt and the MENA region, is that we see in the post-Second World War period a series of what we might think of as transformative coups, or so-called revolutions from above, as, as Trimberger kind of famously classifies them, often led by junior military officers, often taking place without kind of large-scale street-level mobilization, and often without a kind of a kind of independent base of support, either amongst the, the people or the aristocracy. This has to be manufactured later, in fact, as, as anyone who's kind of you know, read uh, the history of the free officers closely knows. Now, crucially in this, as opposed to what we might think of as a social revolution, or we might think of as a kind of reactive restorative coup, revolutions from above or transformative coups, that is junior officers who seize power as a means to both capture the state and then use the state and redirect it 
to fulfill particular political, economic, social projects, actually the bureaucracy tends to figure very centrally in consolidating the success and it's in establishing the authority of the new regime. And so in these kinds of contexts, there is purging going on, but it has to be limited purging of one kind or another. So this then allows us to kind of effortlessly segue into a new fashionable literature that's coming out of political science, which is increasingly concerned with this question of purging. Why is it that elites kind of reconstitute themselves? Why is it that across various discontinuities, across democratic transitions, coups, failed coups, revolutions, and so forth, we tend to see kind of purging processes. And there's a set of questions around why is it that some individuals may be more or less likely to be purged than others? Saying that, uh, the kind of extant literature, as you see, which is very, very recent, is overwhelmingly concerned with what we might think of as being quite shallow purges. These are kind of limited efforts to kind of decapitate rebellious members of the upper elite, uh, such as ministers or military leaders. And this is obviously necessary. And if you have a failed coup, you don't need to reform the entire state. You can just selectively target who you want to purge, as this is a sufficiently credible signal to be able to get the job done. By contrast, and this is what we're kind of more interested in, we might think of actually that also being potentially deep purges, which are much more structurally transformative and typically occur after revolutions, either from below, that is popular revolutions, or using Trimburgers Argot from uh, above. And here, a really kind of defining characteristic of, of these revolutions is this kind of displacement of the state elite, primarily enacted or realized through purging. Tilly talks about this quite a lot. However, and this is where our insight comes in, this is what we want to speak to in our still evolving theoretical edifice that we're, we're developing. These kinds of deep purges, though extensive, have to, by their nature, they, they can't be indiscriminate. They will target potential threats, people who they see as having potentially you know, counter-revolutionary potential, but they will look to retain certain types of people, we think, necessarily because, going back to this point that I talked about earlier, there has to be forms of continuity and there has to be sources of experience and expertise to be able to implement the kind of revolutionary programs that these people come to power promising to do. So with that kind of awkward throat clearing theoretical justification aside, let's like obviously get into the case and which I'm sure I know from the chat many of you are familiar with, but we'll just rehearse uh, some of the kind of the key who, how, where and when. We know that on the 23rd of July 1952, three officers seize power and in doing so publicly commit to purging the army and the state. So this, this question of the salience of purging is already immediately apparent as part as you know, central to the political project, you know, exemplified by that Nagib quote that I started with. And then after initially coming to power, uh, we see like a, a kind of like very parlous uncertain interregnum a transitional period where we have brief moments of, of kind of puppet civilian government before the military formally take over in September. And shortly thereafter, the army announces the appointment of officers to all departments and administrations in the state bureaucracy in an attempt to take control of it and then redeploy it uh, to its own, to their own ends. Now, what we think of is that this is, this is kind of a challenge for the free officers in many ways, a bit like Nagib's quote at the beginning where he says, you know, we're really desperately in need of kind of technical uh, expertise. And that's because that expertise cannot come from the ranks of the free officers themselves. We know, Gilad and I, we have a data set now that we've constructed of, of all of the free officers and we're kind of currently populating different uh, biographical characteristics about them, not just their age, but their background, where they come from, where they serve uh, and so forth. And when they go on to serve, which I'll talk a little bit about at the very end, and we know that when we just survey uh, the free officers, you know, the modal rank of the free officers was captain, about 40% of them. These are very young individuals. They're, they're 33 years old. I'm 36. I'm not sure I would know how to run a state. I mean, they're, they're very relative. They're, they're inexperienced. 
they don't really have any experience of higher education, the Revolutionary Command Council, the real kind of, you know, political leadership of the free officers. Of its members, only two of them uh, have graduated from university, Mohammed Naguib, who's in many ways peripheral, actually, to day-to-day decision-making, and then the other, only other figure being uh, Khalid Mahiyadeen, pictured here. And again, this, I think, motivates this kind of puzzle that we're thinking about, which is, given the, the kind of expertise that this group can draw on, this must have implications for who they purge and who they retain within the state bureaucracy. So this is going to be the, just the general research question that we'll speak to, which is just how did the, the 52 revolution transform Egypt's state and bureaucratic elite? So to get to this is kind of empirically, you might think, difficult, but we think we've got a really good way of doing it. And that is by exploiting what is, I think, a hitherto uh, unexplored or underutilized source, uh, which is called Who's Who uh, in Egypt. It's also published on, under several other names. Here is the, this is the, the front cover uh, of the issue from 1953. And this is a time series that's published from the 1930s up until 1958, 1959, when it ceases publications. So these are held in kind of incomplete collections. Like this took a long time to kind of track down the various volumes. But the majority of them are held between Sedej and Cairo, which I'm sure so many of you know. The British Library holds quite a few of them. The University of Wisconsin at Madison, for some reason, has, has a lot of the time series. So we basically managed to, to what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to exploit this source to try to give us some kind of time varying insight into who is the elite during this period. And that's because the, one of the really nice things about the source material is that they, the front matter of every issue, I should also mention, this is a volume that's published in Cairo, it's printed in Cairo, it's edited uh, by people based in Egypt, uh, and it's published annually. Uh, and the front matter of every issue or every volume, there is a seemingly complete list of all ministers and senior bureaucrats in the state at this period. So this is, for example, as you can see, it's, it's a kind of mix between, uh, it's mainly French, for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And this is just a, a zoom in of, of the kind of detail that we get. We don't just get just the minister and the senior civil servants, but we get the kind of the top echelon of uh, the state bureaucracy. Now, what's really nice about, about these issues is not only do we have their names and their ranks and their titles, but in the interior of these volumes, which are very thick, by the way, you could kind of use them as a doorstop or to beat a burglar up with, you have uh, disaggregated biographical information about each person, um, and including people who you, would, you would think are actually employed in quite sensitive positions. So this is uh, General Mohammed Imam Ibrahim Bey. We see some information about him. We zoom in on the right-hand side. He's won an award. He's got a royal honor, the Order of the Nile. He's the director of the special department at the Ministry of Interior. Um, sounds a bit spooky. We have stuff like where he's born, we have his date of birth, we have his education, uh, we even have where he lives. And indeed, in some of the other biographical ske sketches, we have even more than that. We have who they're married to, which social clubs they belong to. We have quite a lot of quite rich, disaggregated information that we can draw on. And in, and in total, it should be noted, we've coded all of these. So from 1939 to 1959, we have information for about two and a half thousand ministers and senior civil servants in Egypt. And for the project that I'm currently talking about now, we're only using a very thin uh, slice of that uh, data. So this gets us to some graphs, health warning that there are going to be some graphs, where we can start to get into this question of elite survival and turnover. So this is just using this data to just basically plot um, how long people stay in office post-52. So one of the really nice things about these who's who in Egypt is that the one that's published in 1952 is published in June of 1952. So it's extremely current. It's, it's literally you've got a snapshot of the state and bureaucratically just before the free officers take over. And then what we can do is we can use the subsequent editions to track 
whether these same people appear in these kind of seemingly complete lists over time. And this is the general uh, distribution. We can see that nearly half of our individuals, they don't survive one year. So by 1953, nearly half of them have disappeared. Here, maybe a bit more than 20% of them only last for one year. And then we get this kind of interesting tale where actually nearly 10% of, of our elites actually stay till the end of our time series when these editions stop publishing, which is our, at the end of our analysis period, up until the consolidation of the United Arab Republic. We can formalize this in different ways. If any of you are into stats, we can think of this as a, as a survival problem. So we can think about the probability of individual survival in the aggregate uh, over time. This is called a Kaplan-Meier survival estimate. So we can see that by year one after the coup, the probability of somebody surviving drops by 50% and another 25%. And then again, you see this flattening going off. And it's, it's really this that we're interested in. Who is being retained uh, in the tail and who is more likely to be purged in the kind of opening years as the kind of revolution uh, unfolds and consolidates? So uh, this is when it gets a little bit uh, numerical. So to do this, uh, we've got to think systematically and we've got to draw on tools from often regression analysis to be able to to account for the different kind of factors that we might we think that might uh, be influencing this. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to have our unit of analysis is going to be uh, an individual. We've got 674 ministers and se senior bureaucrats who are in post in just on the eve of the queue in June of 52. And we're going to index them. We're just going to call these people I. And they're located in 19 ministries or institutions. So that could be the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Interior, Ministry of Supply, the Diplomatic Corps, Foreign Affairs, uh, and so on and so forth, the Royal Court, Parliament, et cetera. And what we're going to do is we're going to observe every one of these individuals yearly from 52 to 59. And the thing that we're going to try to explain is who is going to exit the, the elite first? So the way to think about this, if you're not kind of familiar with these kinds of approaches, I, I don't want you to think I'm just waving a statistical wand here. The, the way to think about it is, is, is that every single, every single time you observe these individuals, the question is, we're going to mark a variable as one when they exit the, the elite. And the question is, how many units of time does it take, measured in years, for them to exit the elite as opposed to others as a function of a, 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 of a set of both individual level and ministry level or institutional level characteristics? So this is, if you're kind of, if I'm very happy to talk about this in the Q&A, I'll just briefly mention. So the way we're going to estimate this is using a form of regression analysis. Uh, in this case, it's a bit of a mouthful. It's called multi-level log normal accelerated failure time survival analysis. Otherwise, you can think of this as event history analysis. People use this a lot in, it's actually a technique that's pioneered by a statistician based at Nuffield at Oxford who died recently, Sir David Cox, proponent or the inventor of the so-called Cox proportional, Cox proportional hazard models, where what you want to do is something happens to you, like you have medical records for a bunch of patients, some of them take a medicine, others don't, and it's the time to a medical outcome like survival or death. We can use this in the same way to think about survival or turnover or exiting the elite to study what happens to the state bureaucracy in Egypt after 52. So here, this is just going to be explained by, I won't go all the way through the equation. On the left-hand side, the thing we're explaining is the time to the event for an individual located in the ministry in any given year. And we're going to explain that by a bunch of independent variables that measured at both the, independent, at both the individual and ministry level with beta k, the coefficients to be estimated. We've got just a dummy time varying variable, which will capture, I'll talk about in a minute, regime consolidation and Nasser. And then the key thing is that we probably think that individuals who are based in the same ministry, their hazard of being purged is probably not independent of each other. That is to say, if one person's purged in the Ministry of Interior, that might affect the likelihood that another person working in the same ministry, they, they get purged, they survive. And so we account for this by having a ministry or institution level uh, random intercepts. Happy to talk about this in the Q&A if that's 
in any way interesting or, or, or not clear. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to operationalize these ideas numerically using these individual level uh, characteristics that we get from these biographies. And we're going to we're going to structure around this, this this competing or dual logic of threat and experience. So we know from our who's who's in Egypt, we have quite a lot of information about these people. We know, for example, if they're a minister and a secretary, we can measure their closeness to the king, King Furu, at this point, um, who might be seen as a kind of counter source of counter revolutionary threat. But the number of royal honors that they've received, this is our kind of proxy for proximity to the king. This is as good as we've as we've managed to get thus far. We also know their titles. We know if they are from the notables. We know if they're a pasha, for example. We might think that people with military training are more likely to be purged because they're seen as threatening. These are after this is after all a junior officer queue, so we can account for that. And we can also we also think that there's something about spatial proximity that matters. So after 52, we see the Abdin Palace become the Republican Palace. And we think that people, because the 52 revolution is, in the, in the words of the, of the coup plotters, it's a national revolution, it's not the result of a foreign conspiracy. We think that as a consequence of that, threat is going to be felt much more locally within the confines of Egypt. And so people who operate at a distance from that, so for example, diplomats who are based far away from Egypt. So you know, we'll talk about, I'll talk a little bit about Egypt's diplomatic war in just a second. We might think that these people are seen as less important. And so because we're interested in time to the event, we might think that threat also travels both spatially across and across time. And so people who are further away are just not prioritized. And so they're more likely to be retained as a function of this distance. So we can actually measure distance very, very easily. So we actually have maps. This is a map on the left-hand side of Cairo from 1951. So just the eve of the revolution stroke coup. And we know these, what you can see on the left-hand side, the Ministry of Public Works, Parliament, Ministry of Public Health, and so forth. And what we can do is we can just draw polygons uh, around these buildings, get their centroid, which is the, the average weighted centroid of these often multi-building spaces. And then we can just measure the distance in kilometers between that building and what becomes, in this case, the Aberdeen Palace on the right-hand side of the map or the Republican Palace as it becomes later on. This is actually much more interesting for, for diplomats. We think that they're probably, because of the, the political program of the three officers, they're probably going to be a set of prioritizations around who's going to be recalled first, if indeed they are recalled. Again, this is using the source material. We can actually reconstruct the diplomatic presence of the Egyptian state or the Furu state on the eve of the 52 events. So this is just like obviously a chloropleth map colored by the number of diplomats. So we can actually see, interestingly, in just on the eve of the, of the revolution, most Egyptian diplomats are obviously in the United States and Europe. There are actually very few in the Arabic-speaking Middle East. And this changes over time. But for our purposes here, the intuition is that if you're the ambassador to Argentina, you're just not threatening in the same way as a senior official in the Ministry of Interior. And so as a function of this, this distance, you're just more likely to survive for, for longer. And then we also have some measures for this kind of competing set of hypotheses related to experience, this idea that actually the free officers, they do need to keep some people around to be able to get the job done. Uh, so we measure that in two principal ways. Uh, the first one is just the amount of time that people have spent in their position. Our, our data starts in 1939, so we're just going to measure the amount of years that a person has held that position since 39, with the, ex with the expectation being that controlling for or net of all these other factors, you know, if you're not a, a senior official or a minister or an undersecretary and you've been in your job for a long time, that might be quite a desirable person to keep around. Equally, we know qualitatively from the case details that there's a real, real desperate need for technical expertise. And so we might think that people with terminal university degrees are just seen as more desirable, they're more important. And so they're also more likely to be uh, kept around. So the implication of this is that for, for threat, these, these independent variables, their coefficients should be, in this case, positively signed. They should be more likely to, 
to lead to somebody exiting the elite. And contrarywise, these variables should be negatively signed, that they should mean that you can survive for longer uh, effectively. Um, and this is a selection on observables design. I'm happy to think through there's a better, cuter causal inference approach uh, that you can think of. But so we have to control for potential confounding stuff. And we get that from the case. We know, for example, that in 52-53, a kind of sop to the Muslim brothers is that they allow, they appoint the Muslim brother to Wazat uh, al-Qaf, the Ministry of Endowments, and that there's a kind of, the brothers are allowed to kind of like take over some perhaps religiously inflected roles in the state. So those individuals who are in power before 52, they may be more or less vulnerable. We also think that when Nasser takes power in 54, this represents a moment of regime consolidation, which could go one of either two ways. It could be either that this then elicits a further round of purging, or as we think is, is really the case, you know, Nasser's effectively being in control since the three officers take power. And so this might actually lead to regime consolidation. And so coups, uh, purging will, will tail off. And then finally, it's self-evident that in larger ministries, there's just going to be naturally more turnover. Um, and so people in those ministries are just, there's just going to be more, there's going to be a ministry level effect as a consequence of that. We do have even more populated models that I won't go on to talk about where we talk about where we control for things like age, because we might think that older people are just more likely to retire or suffer health and then die naturally and leave the data set that way. There are some gendered dimensions. There are a handful of women uh, in positions during this period. We know their religion that we code from their names. We know the membership of things like social clubs. We, we test additional models, including these. They, they don't do anything. They're not very important, but it's just worth flagging that we're trying to think through controlling out uh, anything, any potential confounders. So uh, these are the results. Hopefully uh, some of you at least have seen what a COF plot uh, looks like before. The way to understand this is this. Again, this is a, this is a regression model. So these are our independent variables on the left-hand side. These little dots, these are the estimated effects. In this case, the dots are exponentiated into what's called a survival time ratio, or the median time that you would expect somebody to survive given this characteristics. In this case, if you're a senior official, and these are located on the 95% confidence interval. So the intuition here, when we think about statistical significance, we're often talking about, is an association distinguishable from zero, for example? If it's not, then the tail of these 95% confidence intervals will cross the red line, here marked as one. And so we would say this is not statistically significant. That is to say, it's not distinguishable from zero. And the way to interpret this is, if these are effectively, if you're a senior official, and these are survival times, that means that senior officials are on average 22% less likely to survive. We have median, the median time of their survival is 22% less compared to someone who's not a senior official after adjusting for all these other factors. So I'll, I'll go through them, hopefully not too quickly. Basically, in summary, we, we do find like pretty strong evidence for this idea that there's this tension between threats and, and, and experience leading to patterning individual outcomes. So we can see that if you're a senior official, you're, it reduces uh, your median survival time by about 22%. People with more royal honors, that is to see they've, they've received more baubles and awards from the king, which we're using as a measure of proximity to the king. Their survival time is also uh, significantly and substantively reduced. These are uh, continuous variables. So I'll show you some plots that make a little bit more sense of the, the, this in a minute. Actually being a kind of ostensibly you know, a notable is actually, it's negative, it's, it, it reduces your survival time, but it's not statistically significant. And that's when we look at this, when we decompose the models a little bit and we populate the variables in different orders, it's because this is also highly correlated with just being a more senior official and being uh, more connected to the king. Interestingly, military officers, we know that they're purging the army, but in the state, 
those with a kind of military training, they are they look like their, their survival time is negatively impacted, but again, not statistically significant from zero. We do find support for this idea that those people who are distant from you know, power as it's playing out in, uh, in Cairo, that as you increase distance, actually your survival time increases. And I'll, again, I'll unpack this a little bit more in a second. Equally, those people who have more experience are more likely to survive, their survival time is increased. And those people with a terminal university degree, this is a binary variable, their survival and median survival time is about nearly 20% greater than those without a terminal university degree, again, adjusting for all these other factors. I won't go through the controls. They, they behave broadly as, as we might uh, expect, or that it's not distinguishable from zero. So we can start to, to give a little bit more flesh and understand what these kind of relationships look like. Again, for our continuous variables, like if we think about years of experience pre-coup or takeover, this can be measured as you know, some people have one year, some people have five years, some people have 10 years, some people have 15 years. So it's a continuous variable and we want to know uh, how different values of that X variable impact uh, the outcome of interest. In this case, on the Y axis, this is uh, the survival time as a percentage. And then obviously on the X axis, this is the time varying change. And what we, what we operationalize this as is people who are at the fifth and the 95th percentiles of experience. So for example, if you're at the fifth percentile of experience, you basically don't have very much experience. If you're at the 95th percentile of experience, you're pretty experienced, right? And what we see is that if we compare the two survival curves of these two different characteristics, we can see that those people with more experience on average in a given unit time, their survival is about 10 to 15% better. So it's, it's, it's important. Equally, exactly the same logic applies uh, to Royal Honours. The difference between people who have more or less Royal Honours, it's, it's not as substantive, but still, it's, it's still present. It's maybe about seven or 8%. The more Royal Honours you have, the closer you are to the king your survival time reduces by seven or 8% in any given unit of time. It then narrows as we get to the end of our, uh, our analysis period, because most of those people have been purged basically. And then finally, this question of distance, those people who are again at the fifth percentile, that is to say people who are very spatially proximate to the Republican palace in their day-to-day -day working lives versus people who are quite far away. Those people are much further away. They're much more likely to survive. And, and again, in the kind of qualitative details, and I'm happy to talk about this in the Q and A, it really is the case the diplomatic corps is broadly retained with some exceptions. And there are interesting exceptions to that that fulfill the broader patterns. So for example, the Egyptian ambassador to the UK, the Egyptian ambassador to Italy, both people who are known to be very, very close to the king, they're both purged. But then generally the average tendency is that people who are, who are in the diplomatic corps are retained. So this is the last graph, I promise. And this gets at this idea. So in our modeling strategy, we're trying to think about variance or the thing that explains the outcome that is how long it takes for you to get purged as operating on two fundamental different levels. You can have individual level characteristics like are you a senior official or not? Or you can have the place where you work. You might think that the place, that you, regardless of, of who you are and your experience, some places, just your association with them, there's gonna be like what we might think of as a residual institutional effect on being personal. And we do find evidence of that. So this. Here, what we're doing technically is we're plotting the random intercepts from our models. And we have two, uh, two different sets of intercepts here. We have a random sets of random intercepts in the light gray from what we might think of as the null model. That is a model where you don't have any covariates on the right-hand side. We're just going to look at the residual variance at this level two factor, which is the ministerial institution. And then we have the darker gray ones, which are, is the residual variance. Once we take into account all those variables I went on to talk about, being a senior official, distance, experience, and so forth, and what we find is actually something quite interesting. 
in the null model, actually, there seems to be a kind of residual importance of if you work in the royal courts or associated with the royal court, you're much more likely to be purged. If you work in parliament, you're much more likely to be purged. However, when we start to take into account actually individual level characteristics in the four model, we can see that once we take into account like ties to the king, actually then the effect of the royal court is attenuated to zero. That is to say, this institutional effect is really just proxying for individual level characteristics. Parliament, however, if you have any kind of connection with parliament, net of whatever your background is, you're just much more likely to be purged. I think if anyone knows the case de details of Egypt in 52, that makes complete sense. Equally, the diplomatic core in our null model, where we just don't take into account just things like spatial distance, it looks like you're more likely to survive. But as soon as you take into account distance and all these other factors, again, it's not distinguishable from zero. However, then we do still have these two other institutional effects that can't just be explained by our variables. It looks as if the, the, the institution itself has an independent effect on individual survival and turnover. And those are the following. So uh, on the one hand, education, which I think totally aligns with our kind of expertise experience stories. If you work in Ministry of Education, and this also includes the leadership of like universities, you're just gonna, you're not gonna get purged. You are much more likely to be retained. There seems to be some kind of protective halo of being associated with these institutions that means that you're more likely to, to stick around. And at the same time, foreign affairs, something that I had not picked up from case readings, that uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, again, is broadly retained intact. And you could probably tell a kind of post hoc story about why that is, because you know, there is forms of knowledge of expertise about different parts of the world, whether that's language or experience that the free officers just do not have. And so they keep these people around. Although we know again as well from the case details that the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, when it comes to really important diplomatic issues, they're basically sidelined. And then you have personal emissaries, so Haeckel, for example, who the free officers use to kind of conduct business. So here's the rushed conclusion discussion. We actually find that the, these competing logics of threat and expertise, we, we do think that they powerfully pattern the survival of colonial era uh, state elites in a post-colonial period when you have this kind of revolution from above. Individuals connected to Egypt's deposed monarchs and very senior officials were just much more likely to be purged. Also people who are attached to those particular institutions, uh, experienced officials on the other hand, and those with advanced university degrees were retained or their survival time was just much greater. They were kept around for longer. And again, we have these kind of residual workplace effects that suggest that some institutions were just seen as too important like the Ministry of Education or too threatening like the parliament. And these, there were these kind of institutional effects that we can also statistically detect. Now, here's my kind of defensive Further point, just anticipating some questions. This is ongoing, so we've got two big unresolved questions that we want to we want to attend to that we just haven't had time to yet. One is that for those people who were retained, we can trace their careers. We can know if they stay in the same ministry or not. We can tell you if they, they're promoted or not. We're quite interested in the career trajectories of, of, of those uh, 52, pre-52 elites who keep their positions. We don't have strong expectations about that. It's kind of an open empirical question. We also, as I mentioned, we have a list of the kind of original 335 free officers, and we know who joins the state and who doesn't, who keeps, who stays in the army, who goes and joins different ministries. And we think that might be also quite an interesting question to see who gets parachuted into which bits of the state and why, and why others are then, you know, retain their army commissions. That's it for me. I hope that was kind of interesting and cogent. Thanks. Thank you, Neil. Very interesting. I, I have a question, which is that, I, I can see that the data that you're compiling on the revolution in Egypt can be used in the sense of the study of political upheavals broadly across many different regions of the world. 
and, and that I understand. But in terms of Egyptian history, are you putting empirical flesh on something that everybody already knows intuitively? Or are you arguing against someone? I mean, it, it, is there actually anyone? I mean, I mean, I mean, granted, 1952 is you know perceived sort of in popular terms as a watershed, everything changes, but presumably people who write history know that that's not the case. I mean, certainly if you're writing about cinema, I mean, you get a lot of people talking about, you know, the cinema of the Nasser period, and, and you do find people who assume that everything suddenly changes after 1952, but anybody who even fairly casually studies the history of Egyptian cinema knows that that's not the case and that, you know, things don't actually change very much at all immediately, and then arguably not really very much until after the public sector, after Nasser dies in 1970, when graduates of the Film Institute begin directing films. And so I guess, you know, the basic question is, are you arguing against somebody in terms of Egyptian history? Yeah, that feels like a very damning comment on my career to date, which is I just, I just show, things that, show things that people already know, or well, they think they know. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a good point. I mean, it, it's certainly the case in the secondary literature and the kind of, certainly the kind of you know, historiography, popular historiography of the, of the, of the, of the movement and the, and the mobilization, or the revolution of 52. These forms of kind of, these forms of continuity have not been fleshed out and kind of pointed to. It does, it is often portrayed as like just a, a point blank discontinuity moment of radical political change. And it is absolutely the case. We do find there's enormous purging going on. But this question about who is retained and who's kept around, that is seemingly absent. I would be interested to know if there are, um, if, if anyone has any suggestions of people who have kind of documented that. Um, to our knowledge, they, they haven't. I would also say, that, uh, and this is my kind of stock answer to uh, this kind of question, I think there is merit in arbitrating established knowledge or truisms or things that we all hold to be self-evident. In a lot of cases, a lot of these truisms, when you start to kind of scratch at them empirically with the best kind of information available, with kind of systematic empirical analytical techniques, it becomes a lot more nuanced and a lot more uh, messy and complicated than perhaps extant understandings are. And so even as ex exercise of just confirming what we already know, I would kind of insist that it's it's valuable. Again, like most of our findings, it's not so much that we're kind of arguing against people, but rather showing things that hadn't previously been appreciated. So, for example, uh, the kind of forms of continuity and the retention of the of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Diplomatic Corps, uh, as far as we know, this has just not been picked up by anyone. And again, like this is quite interesting and gives us some insight into the logics and thinking of the free officers, and in turn helps us to explain kind of what comes later. Yeah, that's maybe a slightly unsatisfactory answer to your all too familiar question, Walter Andrews. Yes, um, in fact, I'm sure I've asked you the same question from other lectures that you've given. But I, I, I'm, I'm actually, it was a good, it was a good answer to the question. I re should remind everybody that you should use the Q and A button if you want to ask questions. We have a question from Yasmina Mather, which is that uh, she, she says, maybe I missed this, but can you say something about security services in terms of redeployment? Yeah, so for what we're looking at in the ambit of our study, and just in terms of the information that we have available to us, the kind of coercive arms of the state that we can empirically observe is the Ministry of the War and the Navy, as it's called at this point, and then also what is formally called the Ministry of, of, of Interior. In those cases, it seems to be that, that there isn't so much of an institutional effect going on. I mean, I could really show you the slides where I show this uh, or where we find this. Um, it seems that these, certainly as it applies to, to the Ministry of Interior, this is broadly cleared out. And this is being pretty well explained by the fact that the people who are leading the, the, the ministry at this point 
uh, fulfill all the characteristics that we think would be seen as like a source of counter-revolutionary threat. These are people who, have, who may have some military training. They've got maybe not so much experience. Uh, there aren't very many of them because it's quite, these are quite small ministries, often as a consequence of colonial policy or, British, or the, the residue of British colonial policy. And the people who are staffing it often quite close to the king, for example. So these would all be people that we would say, it's not the fact that they work in the Ministry of Interior that's explaining this. It's just actually their individual level characteristics. What we were surprised to find, I kind of, I, I hesitate to say this, but, but if you read the, the abstract of the talk, we did actually find that people with military training were more likely to be purged. However, this turns out to be quite sensitive to how you model it statistically. And it behaves, I mean, it look, I mean depending on, on the kind of analytical choices that you make, it does seem to be that people with, with for example, military training are, are perceived as being especially threatening. However, this could be an artifact of the kind of, of the, of how we decide to kind of statistically estimate these associations. So take it with a pinch of salt, but this is kind of a factor that kind of drops in and out of importance, depending on, as I say, these kind of analytical choices. Sorry, I can't give you more than that. We have a question from an anonymous attendee, which is, it says, thank you very much for your wonderful sharing of your data and analysis. I want to ask if free officers were assimilated into elite culture of the former dynasty as the people who were running the state, or is it more that those who were, that those old elites were incorporated into the new military culture? That's a great question. I, I'm going to bring in my co-author here, Gilad, who has otherwise been free riding on my, on my activities thus far, who, who may have something interesting and insightful uh, to say about that, because nothing immediately jumps to mind. Gilad. Sure, happy to. I mean, I, I think it's an interesting question and something we have to give a little bit of more thought to. I think that we have to be precise when we talk about which elites are being incorporated or reincorporated back into the state and which military elites are actually leaving uniform to go serve in other arms of the state. And I think that once we can start to empirically answer those questions, we might have a better sense of kind of which way the arrow points. So is it kind of former elites being socialized or incorporated into a new culture, or is it that the new military elite itself is being incorporated into this kind of historically statist culture that existed under the prior regime. So I think it's a question that we still have to answer, but it's a good one. Okay, I have another question. This one's from Marilyn Booth. And she says, thanks, Neil, this is fascinating. And having myself worked a bit in the 19th century equivalents to those who's who volumes, it's interesting to see the level of detail, but I'm wondering about what isn't in those sources and how that might matter. For instance, I wonder if some senior bureaucrats moved laterally back to the ISBA for a while or into a company and might have remained an important part of this elite, still connected in, but not so visible in these sources. And also, I wonder about family. I wouldn't be surprised if who was married to whom still countered in revolutionary Egypt. Yeah, these are, these are very astute questions. So the, the questions are both importantly substantive as it relates to the case, but also kind of very insightful as it opposed to the kind of like statistical kinds of strategies that were, in, that were undertaking here, which are necessarily quite sensitive to what you might think of as an omitted variable, so-called omitted variable bias, where some portion of our effect could actually be capturing something that we're not taking into account in the model. And so the associations that we're finding are potentially spurious. All of the points that you've, you've raised, we've thought about. So. As it, as it relates to family, we have thought about trying to capture some kind of measure 
about are these people connected to each other in some kind of way that we're not currently observing? In the analysis, we can observe, like, do they just work in the same place together? We are kind of capturing that residual variance. But of course, it could be that you could be straddling lots of different uh, ministries or institutions. We do have this variable. We know which social clubs they belong to. These who's who, they're kind of remarkably candid and contain a remarkable amount of detail about some of these people's personal lives, including like their home address, their telephone number, but also importantly, which social clubs they belong to. And our assumption being is that there could be forms of kinship or other kinds of uh, unobserved social networks connecting these people that we're not currently taking into account. So what we can basically do is we can construct a measure, which is, I mean, there's, there's several of them. One of them is like, just how many social clubs do you belong to? That, and the implication being the more social clubs you belong to, this the more connections that you might have. And when we take that into account, it doesn't change anything. The other one, which we haven't taken into account yet, because it kind of problematizes our analysis in maybe ways that we haven't fully thought through, which is as soon as you start talking about people being connected, that means that they're not necessarily independent from each other. And that actually, again, does some, poses some difficult questions for the way that we're currently analyzing things. It is possible to say, for example, that if somebody survives and they belong to a social, a certain uh, social club, does that mean that someone who also belongs to that club is also more likely to survive in a given year, for example? We can take that into account, but I haven't thought of a clever way of doing it yet. Otherwise, in terms of like, again, like just looping back to questions like marriage, one of the problems that we face is that the biographical sketches are quite inconsistent in, in how much information they report. And, and some people don't have these biographical sketches at all. And so what we have to do is we have to use a statistical technique called multiple imputation, where we simulate the missing value using other characteristics that we do know about this person that we think also predicts the value. We can do that and, and, and try to recover this missing information, although it's not, it's not ideal, but it's, it's still the kind of the, the gold standard about how we should be going about that. And it also say, also say like there are some statistical workarounds. We're, we're currently thinking about this issue, but we don't have, I don't have a complete answer to it. This issue, this question about people can get purged, they can leave the state elite and then go back to their isba or their whatever, and then lay low for a couple of years and then like move back to Cairo and retain their influence. That is absolutely possible, like absolutely. Like our definition of the elite here is necessarily quite thin. So it's about the direct exercise of political power as you are kind of ensconced in office. It could well be that these people, they, they don't just kind of disappear into the other or evaporate. They're still uh, behind the scenes. They're still influential in, in one or another. And we can't account for that. So there could be other forms of continuity that we're not taking into account. And that's an interesting question. And as of 5.52 on the 28th of January, I don't have a, a kind of a clever way of, of getting at it, but it's definitely relevant. I suspect this might be something where we just have to hold our hands up and say, this is obviously plausible and this is kind of worthy of further empirical research because having kind of, we've looked at these sources quite exhaustively. I'm not sure it's something that we can recover. What I would say that does speak to your question, when people exit the elite with, with kind of vanishingly few exceptions, once they exit the elite, they never come back. So this kind of like departure and return, reinventing yourself type dynamic, at least as it applies to getting back into one of these kind of like formal fancy jobs or like high status jobs, doesn't seem to be at stake. Okay, I actually have another question that I wanna ask, just that you must have not been able to avoid thinking about 2011 when you're doing this paper, because in 2011, there was all kinds of desire to purge. But one thing about 
2011 was that the, you know, the fall of the regime wasn't actually a uniform thing. There were some parts of the government that arguably never fell and that always re remained in the hand. I mean, certainly the security services were never in the hands of revolutionary forces and the military and the, you know, the foreign ministry, for example. So from, from the data that you looked at, have you seen any evidence that the fall of the regime was actually incomplete and was only consolidated over time? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we are kind of showing that in some sense. I mean, it does seem to be that, that there are kind of holdout parts of the state. So, for example, education, the foreign ministry, the diplomatic corps, in which, again, like it's almost as if like they don't kind of get to them. So there's this question of ambassadors, for example, or the kind of diplomatic representation abroad. There does seem to be a kind of prioritization going on in which people who are kind of at hand, who may be seen as more threatening, are much more likely to be purged than people who are kind of further away. What I would say, I mean, this is, when we're trying to think of like contemporary parallels, the more interesting one for me is actually not 2011, it's 2013. And here, I think this gives us some insights into what we might think of as like different dynamics of purging as a function of the political event itself. So in 2013, what we would think of, what we see is a kind of almost like a restorative coup d'etat, right? So it's not necessarily transformative, it's just undoing what's happened in the, in the, in the couple of years previously. And in that instance, the literature actually suggests that we should expect quite shallow purging. So we should only have some people being strategically kind of culled, if you will, as maybe not appropriate language. But in fact, actually what we see is actually, I think that the, the kind of elliptical return to authoritarianism in 2013 really sees parts of the state being hollowed out and new people being brought in. And that's an interesting question for the literature, for political scientists, because I wonder whether these dynamics of like deep transformative purges versus shallow purges I wonder whether the shallowness of the purging that they're claiming is actually reflecting the shallowness of their data, which is that they tend to just, they just empirically focus at an even narrower slice of the state. I can also see, I can see a question from Mohammed Yet, who it's lovely to see. I was just about to ask you, I want to say it's a technical question, which I don't understand, oh, I'm, hopefully you I'm, do. I'm here, I'm here for the technical <laughs> questions. Mohammed Yet, lovely to see you, or at least read your writing. Let me read the question so that everybody else knows what question you're addressing. The question is, in your statistical analysis, did you preserve the common assumption of independence and identical distribution? That's the question. Yeah, I, I do. So uh, the answer to that is no. So uh, the data structure is multi-level. So first of all, we assume that individuals who are located within the same institutional ministry, their individual hazard rates or survival times are probably correlated with each other. And so we, we account for that with an explicitly multi-level structure where we have random intercepts at the ministry and information level, uh, an institution level, to be able to take into account that clustering or, or non-independence. In terms of distributions, I'm not quite sure this is exactly what you're asking for, but it, it does have some bearing on, on our analysis. There is an assumption in time to event survival analysis of so-called proportional hazards. I, I kind of briefly gestured this halfway through the talk, which actually our data violates. So often in the in kind of proportional hazard models. The idea is that you have parallel trends given whatever x covariate you have. So if you, for example, if you have a, a binary variable of one or zero, we should see that the survival lines being parallel for both statuses for zero and one. Actually, that's not the case for ours. Actually, what we say is, is a violation of that where, for example, I wish I had a plot to show you. At the beginning of our, of our time series, being a senior official, for example, the hazard of being a senior official, the hazard of, of purging the, is much greater than towards the end of the time series. So the, the significance or the salience of these covariates changing over, changes over time. So to address this, we use 
an accelerated failure time uh, model, which is something that I had to learn about relatively recently because I found out that these assumptions were being violated. And indeed, we implement that and they are substantively similar to our main results, with one exception, with the exception of military officers that I referred to in previous answers. This is the one that's actually very sensitive to the kind of distributional assumptions uh, behind our models. If you assume proportional hazards, uh, actually military officers, having military training is quite an important predictor of, of purging, as is a kind of institutional effect of being associated with or working in the Ministry of War and the Navy. If you don't, and you, you implement what I think is probably a more defensible approach, which is what we're doing now, that finding is then becomes indistinguishable from zero, suggesting that actually the result itself is actually a factor of these non-proportional hazards, as opposed to it being substantively important whether you have military training or not. Hopefully that's clear and cogent. There's a question also from, this is the one question which, which I haven't asked yet, which is from Brody McDonald saying, thanks very much for the presentation. Do you theorize that the relatively reduced purging for foreign affairs is explained by the need for their knowledge of languages and international countries, the distance from the palace, or perhaps both? So that is kind of the answer that I would give. That is our post hoc explanation. Um, this is where actually we're getting into we're getting into, into case study research. So this is, we're trying to find confirmatory evidence for this. And here you could think about you know, a distribution of different types of evidence. What we really want is a kind of smoking gun where Khaled Mohyeddin or Gamal Abdel Nasser says, we need to keep these guys, you know, we need to keep the diplomats around because we don't speak Spanish or we don't know anything about Indonesia. We're currently kind of thinking about ways of looking uh, for this, but this these are our intuitions It would certainly neatly and potentially quite conveniently align with the other findings and explanations that we have. Yeah. Okay, well, and then I, I have one last question since there aren't any more in the Q&A, but uh, I'll ask one more, um, which is that one of, the, one of the truisms or stereotypes about 1952 that one often hears from people who objected to the revolution, who, who thought it was a terrible thing and it ruined the country, was that putting all of these relatively you know, ignorant, boorish military officers in charge of the government re resulted in disaster. And of course, you're suggesting that there was actually quite a bit of institutional continuity. But do you have a systematic way of assessing you know, the relative success and failure of relatively untrained directors being put into government? So that's a great question. Uh, I don't have a good answer to it. I, I would caveat very briefly and this is something that i find happens a lot in this kind of like revisiting history type work that i seem to do all too often which is that as soon as we find something that slightly contradicts a kind of received wisdom we might endow it with a bit too much emphasis and importance while there is forms of continuity the modal person is purged so there's enormous turnover as well which is just worth underlining here there it is interesting we think that still some people are retained but actually the modal person if you are in office in 52 on the eve of the coup, your future of earning a salary from one of these jobs is not looking good. Like you, you probably are gonna get purged. So the continuity is kind of at the margins. And then we're trying to explain why it is that, that some people manage to survive as opposed to others. Um, in terms of like this question of like, where do the free officers parachute in their people? And then what are the effects of having these people on institutional performance? We would love to be able to answer that. It's just a question of like, how do you measure how do you measure the performance of these institutions that then really get taken over by free officers as opposed to institutions where there's forms of like pre-52 continuity? 
I don't have a good answer to it. It's a great question. If, if you can think of a way of measuring that in the kind of numerical systematic way that like seemingly I'm obsessed, obsessed with and Gilad is obsessed with, go for it. Because at the moment we're kind of stumped on that question, but I think it's salient because there is potentially interesting variation there, right? It's like, how does the, how do the free officers when they actually really have to do the day-to-day -day list management of a given ministry or institution, how do they perform compared to the people who have been doing it for a while and have some expertise? Intuition says not as well, but it's it's kind of it's it's an open empirical question that I can only hand wave at at this point. Well, unfortunately, numerical and systematic is not me, but you know, hopefully somebody else will come along who can do that. Neil, thank you very much for an excellent talk, which which I hope is the first of many. And on behalf of your colleagues, I thank you very much, and I'm sure all of your participants are saying the same thing to themselves. Thanks, Walter. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Okay. Yeah.